0: When you have a successful pregnancy, I I would encourage greatly, make sure that whatever bank that it's with, wherever you have gotten your gametes from, report back your live birth and your successful pregnancy. You know, there's always so much of discussion with having to do with, you know, this industry sort of self-policing itself. But the only way that we can do that successfully is if we have patients tell us when they've had success with our
1: products welcome to inside reproductive health the shop talk of the fertility field here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management patient relations and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field wall street and silicon valley both want your patients but there is a plan if you are willing to take action visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system the goal and competitive diagnostic now here's the founder of fertility bridge and the host of inside reproductive health Griffin Jones
2: today on inside reproductive health I'm joined by Dennis Marchese. Dennis is the sperm guy with a master's in genetics and certifications as clinical lab tech and andrology and embryology scientist he has years of experience in the lab His role now is as Director of Laboratory Operations at Zytex, which allows him to use his broad knowledge base to help others on their fertility journeys, and he is currently pursuing a PhD in reproductive clinical science. Mr. Marchese, Dennis, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health.
0: Thank you very much, Mr. Jones. It's nice to be here.
2: Well, I'm interested in talking a little bit with you because one of the things that i often admit to neglecting talking about in the show focusing on in our marketing is the lab and it's such a critical piece of everything that we do it just happens to be on the real back end of the business side very often so that we've only you know we've done 40 some episodes of this show we've done maybe you might be the third one, the third or fourth that we've done on the lab, and also really haven't focused on andrology at all. So I would like to just maybe start because I see so many different options for focusing on male factor from the patient acquisition side and kind of want to explore where your. Knowledge of the science meets those potential business opportunities, and maybe just starting by like your take of how semen analysis testing has improved over time and where you see it going in the next few years
0: sure, absolutely you know semen analysis is, is very it 's a subjective test in a lot of ways, only because the parameters that we look at, you know, we could read things in like WHO manuals and the regulations that are put out there for us, but it's only until you put those into practice that you realize how much, you know, variability there can be between people in the lab. So, you know, we have our gold standard semen analysis and in, you know, 40, 50 years since some of the morphology criteria were put out, there really hasn't been much to replace a good morphology count as a gold standard. You know, you're talking about uh, count motility progression. You know, they've now created computers that can also do these readings for us. You know, we're always looking to stay ahead of the curve and just making sure that, you know, what I'm seeing in my lab is also what someone in your lab is also going to see. You know, you want to reduce the variability between technicians. And, you know, we take a lot of pride and practice and into making sure that we're all sticking to the standards as best we can but morphology is definitely the the linchpin here because we don't have something better to replace it yet morphology is so subjective that it's hard to get so many people on the same page so when you're doing the readings you know we want to make sure that the interpretation is always accurate and is consistent across laboratories, particularly with a lab such as mine, you know, working at a sperm donor bank, what we're creating in our lab needs to translate to what someone else might use after we've distributed our donor sperm. So, you know, semen analysis, it's definitely a really important part of what we're doing. And it unfortunately hasn't had too many Changes over the years they've put a few tests in to try to create adjuncts to you know the gold standard, but kind of as research has looked at these and tested them over the years, nothing's really stuck, so you know we're left with basically what we've had over many years and try to see what we could you know make sure that we're all consistent across the board. How about the delivery of
2: the testers with the location of testing now as opposed to having go into the lab. There's the prospect of at-home testing.
0: How do those vary? Sure, absolutely. A lot of the at-home testing will use probably your smartphone and somehow have an algorithm that can translate between what the smartphone sees into what someone in the lab would see. But those tests, are they're limited. Usually they'll focus on, they could basically tell you Whether sperm is present or not, and then whether it's moving or not. It's not really, it hasn't been adapted well enough yet to establish like usable thresholds, but at the same time, you know, there have been other mail away kits that I think that you were referring to before that, you know, we can sort of have someone collect at home and then send it into a lab, and then the lab itself would perform the analysis. A lot of those are offered for patients that don't have, you know, access to a lab or may need to cryopreserve something that, you know, may have to do with some sort of cancer treatment or something that would make the cryopreservation like time sensitive. Talk a little bit about the effectiveness
2: of mailaway kits. Are they as effective as being right in the lab? Is there I, I imagine that the risk goes up simply from transportation, but provided that something doesn't happen, is even the amount of time, does that often make the test less effective? How do the Malaway kits compare to testing in the clinic so that you're right next to the lab?
0: Sure. The test kits are definitely trying to get as close to being in the lab as possible, but you have to figure the recommendations we go by now tells you you should be analyzing that specimen within two hours of production at most. If you're mailing that away, that's just simply not possible. So you know, how do you overcome something like that? So a lot of the mail-away kits will use some sort of media supplement to sort of extend the life of the sperm. But a lot of times if someone is needing to cryopreserve and uses these mail-away kits, it's because for one reason or another, they're concerned that they won't have any sperm to use Further down the line. So, in that respect, whatever you can cryopreserve is going to be better than nothing. The kits try to be as reliable as if you were in the lab, but I don't think we're at the point right now where I would recommend mailing something away as opposed to just getting up and going to the lab itself. So, part
2: of my interest in the effectiveness of mail away kits is because anything that gets the mail partner involved earlier in the process can be really useful. So in our company, we help fertility centers and companies in the fertility field attract patients. And so we map out from the very beginning, how does someone go from being a total stranger to the field of REI to pursuing effective treatment and seeing an REI? And in those swim lanes, the longest ones are at the OBGYN office. and. Big issue there is that very often the male partner isn't even being tested. And so we might be adding six months to a couple of years to this whole journey because we haven't brought in the male partner sooner. It's, in a, it's a way to help speed that process up if we can do it effectively. So maybe can you speak about uh, the lack of analysis or study or insight into? Male factor infertility in earlier
0: stages of diagnosis? Sure, absolutely. You know, unfortunately, what a lot of people don't understand is that the sperm that you might see in an ejaculate today was actually matured over the last 75, 80 days. So small lifestyle changes are, you know, are not going to be effective in the short term because anything that we're seeing has already been exposed to all of those factors for all of those previous weeks. So what it comes down to when identifying like a male factor in contributing to the treatment, you really just want to see whether or not they would qualify or we would have enough sperm in order to perform ICSI or an IVF cycle. Once that's confirmed, if, if we don't have sperm, the immediate you know, treatment that we would look for is to get the sperm physically with something like a testicular retrieval. But otherwise, there's not a whole lot of options or, or it really takes a humongous lifestyle change in order to, over a long period of time, to see changes in you know, the ejaculate that we're working with. For those reasons, I think that it's not analyzed as early as all of the other female factors because it's much more difficult to make changes on those things. It's a lot more convenient for the patient to just have sort of mechanical interventions such as you know, like what we said before, if there's not enough sperm for an IUI, we're going to just move right to IVF. And for that reason, we need much fewer sperm. So there's not as much that you can do to change the quality of an ejaculate, at least not in the short term.
2: And if those mechanical interventions are proved to be unsuccessful, donor sperm is an option. How have the industry standards for donor sperm changed in the time that you've been in the field?
0: Sure. We're definitely looking to sort of keep up with the cutting edge technology, you know, where out of everyone that sort of applies to be a donor with us, somewhere between one and one and a half percent actually Will hit our books as a qualified donor. So there's a lot of screening that goes on in order to, you know, weed out the best possible choices that we would feel confident then offering to patients. I would say in recent years, the most, the part that's probably come the furthest is definitely the genetics. You look at these different expanded carrier screens that we're able to look for, and you know, you want patients going to want someone who has the least amount of risk as possible. So just I think in the past decade, we had gone from a 35 test panel to 180, and right now we're performing like a 280 test panel. So I think that's really come uh, quite far in what you know the, the donor sperm industry's been able to offer to their patients.
2: Describe that a little bit more. What's in the 280 test panel that wasn't in previous versions?
0: Sure. You know, we want to make sure that whatever we're offering is as healthy as possible. So you want to try to uncover as many underlying conditions that as possible and I think that in expanding the number of recessive conditions that you can test for, you can then make sure that the recipient is then basically compatible with the donor. So if we're able to identify more recessive conditions and then our patient can then go to get tested, for whatever the donor came up positive for we can then be assured that you're not going to get two recessive pairs that come together and then impact the health of that child so you know you want them to be have as greatest an opportunity for a healthy life as possible you mentioned that an
2: average of 1 to 1.5% one of initial applicants actually become Qualified donors that go through the process. What do those other 98 and a half guys
0: do that don't get them to the finish oh. line?
2: No, absolutely.
0: There, you know, it's definitely a stepwise process, and, and our donor coordinators and our lab personnel work very much in conjunction with one another to, you know, be smart about how we're proceeding with these donors. So first things first is you want to make sure that whoever walks through your door has not also walked through someone else's door across the country. So you know we're always checking to make to see that The guys who we accept as donors are first-time donors. So there's certainly like a registry that will check and make sure that they didn't donate elsewhere so we can be sure you're sort of not redistributing the same genetic material out there into the population. But otherwise, you know, we... Is
2: is that registry satisfactory? And uh, When we talk about egg donors often, there's a recurrent concern that, or for gestational carriers for that matter, that they're either isn't a requirement for registry or that it's not satisfactory and one surrogate could be the gestational carrier for many different pregnancies. How does that compare with the registry that's available to sperm donors?
0: Sure. Actually, the registry itself is just a gamete, a donor for gametes in general. So it could be sperm or egg donors. It's called the AGDP. That's Association. For gamete donor providers. So, you know, many of the other places that I've worked with, we will all sort of register our donors in there so that you don't run the risk of having them donate elsewhere. Or if you might disqualify them for some reason and then they try to get around that, you know, by going to a different bank we'll be aware that, hey, this is something that we should be watching out for. And, you know, as it sort of helps us police ourselves.
3: Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad, and you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing... A couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person, person, before you put out an RFP or look for services, before you get your house in order, because by definition, this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world, and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned, and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice sign up for the goal and competitive diagnostic it's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes there is no downside to doing this for your practice only upside now back to inside reproductive health
2: I interrupted you. You were talking about the other qualifications
0: for donors that are met during this screening process. Sure we'd try to do some assessments based on the donor's ability to adjust throughout life so we 'll offer several different screening tools delivered by you know clinical professionals. One of them is the hLAp it 's the Hilson life adjustment profile you know we 're starting to assess potential for paranoia potential for depression, trying to get what other information we have right now to project what will our donor be like in the future? And then is that someone that we would want to be distributing? In addition to that, you know, then you might start trickling into some personality assessments only because a lot of our donors will want to know, hey, what is this person like that I'm choosing. So we'll use like a C personality questionnaire. We also have a psych social assessment. This is sort of like a long talk therapy where a clinical professional will have a conversation with them just to sort of, you know, talk about their history, their childhood, get a good base of the current mental health status of the individual and You know, so while some of these are simply questionnaires, the psych-social part is really an interaction similar to what we're doing now.
2: When you first started in the field, we could offer the promise of anonymity or the objective of anonymity. That's not so much the case anymore. How How is that changed and how is how the cryobanks and the sperm banks have to interface with potential donors and intended parents.
0: Yeah, you definitely hit the nail on the head with that. (laughs) Years ago, everyone was, you know, considered an anonymous donor, and there was very little that you could do to kind of uh, figure something like that out. With tests like, you know, the 23andMe out there now, facial recognition software, you know, all this sort of stuff, there's really... It's very difficult to offer anonymity. You know, speaking for ourselves, Zytec has gone to making all of our donors 100% ID disclosed. For that reason, we don't feel like in 10 years we could realistically maintain that anonymity. So we will choose to let all of our donors know up front that this is... You know, sort of the culture that we live in now. We're going to do as much as we can to keep your identity, you know, a secret until such time that your offspring would reach eighteen years of age, and then they would have the opportunity to have some contact there.
2: This might be a little past your view from working inside the lab, but it has me thinking, and we've had this conversation on the show a few times now. Now that the field is all but collectively agreed that anonymity is no longer something that can even be suggested as an objective, then what, will that do to donor selection so now that we've said okay well we're id disclosed at this point anonymity is no longer even possible what will we start to see in the donor selection process that okay well now i want to see like i I want references i want social proof about my donor i want to see what his ex partners have had to say about him. I want to see what people say about him on social media. I want to know what kind of guy he is. Do you think about that? What the what no longer pursuing anonymity will do to the donor selection
0: interface? Yeah, it definitely is something. We're very transparent with our donors about this from the very beginning. You know, part of that psych social conversation introduces the idea that you know have you thought about how your life might change with this potential contact you know be it years from now assuming that the bulk of our donors are you know college-age kids, they may not be projecting that far out into their lifetime, but between our donor coordinators and some of the other clinical professionals that we have talk with them, we definitely introduce that idea, have conversations about it, and we make sure that they have a good understanding of what this will eventually entail, but as far as I don't think we'd ever get to the point where I think it, you'd, you'd find it really hard to recruit a donor if you told them that yeah your dirty laundry is going to be aired for the rest of the world to see at this point. Like you said, you know ex-partners and things like that. But we do try to provide the opportunity for them to participate if they would like. We have a program called X Y Connects, at which point the donors have the option to sign up and potentially communicate with. people under you know that still that cloak of anonymity because we're able to control what information gets out about the donor and they can you know, you'll find some people want to play a more active role in that sort of thing. So we try to have that opportunity available to them should they choose to, to want to take it.
2: The screening for donors has become even more rigorous over the years. Do you notice the overall number of donors increasing, decreasing, remaining the
0: same? What's that trend like? I think we're seeing more applications now only because, you know, you could be referred to as a friend. You know, you're able to just simply Google this and you'll you'll come up with a few options. I think that a lot of the, while we might see an increase in the number of applicants, the number that are actually are thinking this through and taking it seriously are sort of remaining the same. All the while,
2: I assume that demand for donors is increasing. Is that a correct assumption?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Did you notice a spike after Defense of Marriage Act was defeated in 2015? And there were a lot of clinics in different areas saw more same-sex couples starting in 2015 because this option of family building became safer. Was there a noticeable increase in female-intended parents after
0: 2015? Yeah, to be honest, I, I sort of wish I was on this end of the industry at that time. I had joined this program just about a year ago, so I was unable to see that change after that bill was passed. But it was definitely something that I think would have been nice to have personally experienced and witnessed that sort of fluctuation. But unfortunately, I don't think I have the background to Answer your question appropriately,:
2: Well, I'm going on an assumption that intended parents are increasing, that donors may or qualified donors may or may not be remaining the same. but I do think what we're seeing in an adjacent category for egg freezing and egg donor, one option is the freeze and share, and where someone can essentially have their fertility preservation cycle paid for by donating an allotment. And, or or more, and perhaps the cryopreservation, it might not be as appealing, but one of the other reasons why I was so curious about the effectiveness of Maloway kits is I just believe that by the nature of young men, that there is a market for curiosity of testing and as I see that being an acquisition point. So whether it's the Zytax Business Development that wants to get a hold of me or somebody else that wants to take this to market, I'm really interested in this because I think that there is a market that is much broader than who we currently serve that would benefit from semen analysis testing. I believe that even young men that aren't considering building a family right now could benefit from that but also just the nature of men being really curious and comparing yeah i know because i've done it and i've been in the clinic and texting my friends
0: (laughs) about my results and or (laughs) wish me luck Uh, i I wish i wish i had a, a nickel for every time someone has after they realize what you do, if they've ever said, oh, have you checked yourself out? And yeah, now that, that curiosity is definitely always going to be there. The real linchpin for making mail-away semen analysis a viable thing is going to be the reproducibility of, are we able to mimic what is seen an hour after production in the lab and then look at it 24 hours later without any sort of decline? And right now, the options are very limited as far as what sort of supplementation that you can add to the the sample itself in order to preserve it for that long. In theory, it sounds great, but I just don't think that it's 100% there yet. That's sort of why earlier when you had mentioned these mail-away kits, right now they're, they're heavily geared toward freezing. Because we know with certainty that if we can get the sample there within a certain amount of time, we know that we can have it alive. And then therefore, it can be used with some of these more invasive procedures at a later point in time. But if I'm going to tell you, you've only got 25% motility, and I can't compare that to when if you would produce something at the lab and you had 75% motility, you don't want to be making you know, diagnosis or, or clinical decisions based on something that you realize is not as accurate as it could be. For that reason, in order to get those mail-away kits to the point that you're referring to, I think that there's some work to be done to bring them up to that standard.
2: So that brings me to the question. It's a great point. It brings me to a question of how Zytax partners with other clinics are donors and those doing testing are they coming to partner clinics whether they be REI clinics or urologists or andrology clinics? How are donors and those going through testing coming to
0: Zytex? Sure. Our donors, we have a network of laboratories, you know, that the donors come and make their donations at. We then cryopreserve the samples there and we ship them back to our main biorepository where they'll remain for the duration of their quarantine period. Once they are released from quarantine, you know, they have to pass all the FDA regulations with regards to, you know, disease testing and things like that. But once we have them available for sale, we will only sell them to someone who is under the supervision or treatment of a doctor. You know, we don't, we won't just sell to someone just because even those individuals who would prefer to have like a a home ship where they don't want to necessarily try to be inseminated in a clinic, we still always confirm firm that they are under a doctor's supervision while, you know, handling our products in any way. Can
2: any fertility practice become a Zytex lab or
0: does someone have to have an hydrology lab? No, our products are cryopreserved in such a way that any REI lab can use them, but we won't, you know, the donors that we have recruited, we've vetted them and they've gone through all of these procedures you know the qualifications that we were talking about earlier you wouldn't just have one or two donors at a random location who would have that we would have necessarily invested all this time and effort in to qualify them as a donor and then not have them be part of the program because that rapport is very important that we have with the donors you know they feel comfortable with us it's another person to say hello to and you know, you understand what they're going through in their life. Without that sort of rapport, it becomes very difficult to then maintain that contact throughout, one, their donation period, but also you want to make sure that you keep in contact with them for the long haul so that when their potential children are of ID disclosure age, you want to make sure that we can then come in contact with them. We want to form that relationship and that foundation now so that we can maintain that you know, for when they get older.
2: Dennis, you've given us a lot more insight into the lab, but especially the andrology lab. How would you want to conclude with our audience of fertility specialists and practice managers, whether it be about gamete donation or andrology or what you see for the field in the coming years?
0: Yeah. One thing I just would really encourage, you know, anyone who's listening to this is, you know, when you have a successful pregnancy, I I would encourage greatly, make sure that whatever bank that it's with, wherever you have gotten your gametes from, report back your live birth and your successful pregnancy. You know, there's always so much of discussion with having to do with, you know, this industry sort of self-policing itself. But the only way that we can do that successfully is if we have patients tell us when they've had success, with our products and in that way I think that we could really improve like the whole business of this going forward so I know we hadn't sort of touched on it earlier but that would definitely be something that i would encourage you know your listeners to do is just make sure that we know when you've had success with these things because that goes a long way to helping us you know move forward with this business
2: dennis marchese thank you very much for coming on inside reproductive health and all
0: the best in defending your phd uh, thank you very much sir. you take care